0: Part two, chapter twenty one of The Patrician by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter twenty one. When Milton left Valley's House, he walked in the direction of Westminster. During the five days that he had been back in London, he had not yet entered to the House of Commons. After the seclusion of his illness, he still felt a yearning, almost painful, towards the movement and stir of the town. Everything he heard and saw made an intensely vivid impression. The lions in Trafalgar Square, the great buildings of Whitehall, filled him with a sort of exultation. He was like a man who, after a long sea voyage, first catches sight of land, and stands straining his eyes, hardly breathing, taking in one by one the lost features of that face. He walked on to Westminster Bridge, and, going to an embrasure in the very centre, looked back towards the towers. It was said that the love of those towers passed into the blood. It was said that he who had sat beneath them could never again be quite the same. Milton knew that it was true, desperately true, of himself. In person he had sat there but three weeks, but in soul he seemed to have been sitting there hundreds of years, and now he would sit there no more. An almost frantic desire to free himself from this coil rose up within him. To be held a prisoner by that most secret of all his instincts, the instinct for authority, to be unable to wield authority because to wield authority was to insult authority. God, it was hard. He turned his back on the towers and sought distraction in the faces of the passers-by. Each of these he knew. "'Had his struggle to keep self-respect? "'Or was it that they were unconscious of struggle or of self-respect "'and just let things drift? "'They looked like that, most of them. "'And all his inherent contempt for the average or common "'welled up as he watched them. "'Yes, they looked like that. "'Ironically, the sight of those from whom he had desired the comfort of compromise "'served instead to stimulate that part of him which refused to let him compromise.' They looked soft, soggy, without pride or will, as though they knew that life was too much for them, and had shamefully accepted the fact. They so obviously needed to be told what they might do, and which way they should go. They would accept orders as they accepted their work or pleasures. And the thought that he was now debarred from the right to give them orders rankled in him furiously. They, in their turn, glanced casually at his tall figure leaning against the parapet, not knowing how their fate was trembling in the balance. His thin, sallow face and hungry eyes gave one or two of them perhaps a feeling of interest or discomfort, but to most he was assuredly no more than any other man or woman in the hurly-burly. That dark figure of conscious power struggling in the fetters of its own belief in power was a piece of sculpture they had neither time nor wish to understand, having no taste for tragedy for witnessing the human spirit driven to the wall. It was five o'clock before Milton left the bridge, and passed, like an exile, before the gates of church and state, on his way to his uncle's club. He stopped to telegraph to Audrey the time he would be coming tomorrow afternoon, and, on leaving the post office, noticed in the window of the adjoining shop some reproductions of old Italian masterpieces, amongst them one of Botticelli's Birth of Venus. He had never seen that picture, and remembering that she had told him it was her favourite, he stopped to look at it. Averagely well-versed in such matters as became one of his cast, Milton had not the power of letting a work of art insidiously steal the private self from his soul and replace it with the self of all the world, and he examined this far-famed presentment of the heathen goddess with aloofness, even irritation. The drawing of the body seemed to him crude, the whole picture a little flat and early. He did not like the figure of the flora. The golden serenity and tenderness of which she had spoken left him cold. Then he found himself looking at the face, and slowly, but with uncanny certainty, began to feel that he was looking at the face of Audrey herself. The hair was golden and different, the eyes grey and different, the mouth a little fuller, yet it was her face the same oval shape, the same far-apart arched brows, the same strangely tender, elusive spirit. And, as though offended, he turned and walked on. In the window of that little shop was the effigy of her for whom he had bartered away his life, the incarnation of passive and entwining love, that gentle creature who had given herself to him so utterly for whom love, and the flowers, and trees, and birds, music, the sky, and the quick-flowing streams, were all self-sufficing. And who, like the goddess of the picture, seemed wondering at her own existence. He had a sudden glimpse of understanding, strange indeed in one who had so little power of seeing into others' hearts. Ought she ever to have been born into a world like this? But the flash of insight yielded quickly to that sickening consciousness of his own position, which never left him now. Whatever else he did, he must get rid of that malaise. And what could he do in that coming life? Write books? What sort of books could he write? Only such as expressed his views of citizenship, his political and social beliefs. As well remained sitting and speaking beneath those towers. He could never join the happy band of artists, those soft and indeterminate spirits for whom barriers had no meaning, content to understand, interpret, and create. What should he be doing in that galley? The thought was inconceivable. A career at the bar, yes, he might take that up. But to what end? To become a judge? As well continue to sit beneath those towers. Too late for diplomacy, too late for the army. Besides, he had not the faintest taste for military glory. Bury himself in the country like Uncle Dennis, and administer one of his father's estates. It would be death. Go amongst the poor. For a moment he thought he had found a new vocation. But in what capacity? To order their lives when he himself could not order his own? Or as a mere conduit pipe for money, when he believed that charity was rotting the nation to its core? At the head of every avenue stood an angel or devil with drawn sword. And then there came unto him another thought: Since he was being cast forth from church and state, could he not play the fallen spirit like a man, be Lucifer and destroy? And instinctively he at once saw himself returning to those towers and beneath them crossing the floor joining the revolutionaries, the radicals, the free thinkers, scourging his present party, the party of authority and institutions. The idea struck him as supremely comic, and he laughed out loud in the street. The club which Lord Dennis frequented was in St James's, untouched by the tides of the waters of fashion, steadily swinging to its moorings in a quiet backwater. And Milton found his uncle in the library, He's reading a volume of Burton's travels, and drinking tea. "'Nobody comes here,' he said. "'So, in spite of that word on the door, we shall talk. Oh, "'Wait, waiter, bring some more tea, please.' Impatiently, but with a sort of pity, Milton watched Lord Dennis's urbane movements, wherein old age was, pathetically, trying to make each little thing seem important, if only to the doer. Nothing his great-uncle could say would outweigh the warning of his picturesque old figure. To be a bystander, to see it all go past you, to let your sword rust in its sheath, as this poor old fellow had done. The notion of explaining what he had come about was particularly hateful to Milton. But since he had given his word, he nerved himself with secret anger and began, I promised my mother to ask you a question, Uncle Dennis. You know of my attachment, I believe. Dennis nodded. "'Well, I have joined my life to this, lady's. "'There will be no scandal, "'but I consider it my duty to resign my seat "'and leave public life alone. "'Is that right or wrong, according to your view?' "'Lord Dennis looked at his nephew in silence. "'A faint flush coloured his brown cheeks. "'He had the appearance of one travelling in mind over the past. "'Wrong, I think.' "'he said at last. "'Why, if I may ask? "'I have not the pleasure of knowing this lady, "'and am therefore somewhat in the dark. "'But it appears to me that your decision "'is not fair to her.' "'That is beyond me,' said Milton. Lord Dennis answered firmly. "'You have asked me a frank question "'expecting a frank answer, I suppose?' "'Milton nodded. "'Then, my dear, don't blame me "'if what I say is unpalatable.' "'I shall not.' "'Good. You say you are going to give up public life for the sake of your conscience. "'I should have no criticism to make if it stopped there.' "'He paused, and for quite a minute remained silent, "'evidently searching for words to express some intricate thread of thought. "'But it won't, Eustace. "'The public man in you is far stronger than the other. "'You want leadership more than you want love.' Your sacrifice will kill your affection. what you imagine is your loss and hurt will prove to be this lady's in the end. Milton smiled, Lord Dennis continued very dryly and with a touch of malice. You're not listening to me, but I can see very well that the process has begun already underneath. There's a curious streak of the Jesuit in you, Eustace. What you don't want to see, you won't look at. You advise me then to compromise? On the contrary, I point out that you will be compromising if you try to keep both your conscience and your love. You will be seeking to have it both ways. That is interesting. And you will find yourself having it neither, said Lord Dennis sharply. Milton Rose In other words, you, like the others, recommend me to desert this lady who loves me and whom I love, "'And yet, uncle, they say that in your own case—' "'Lord Dennis had risen, too, "'having lost all the appanage and manner of old age. "'Of my own case,' he said bluntly, "'we won't talk. "'I don't advise you to desert anyone. "'You quite mistake me. "'I advise you to know yourself. And I tell you my opinion of you, "'you were cut out by nature for a statesman, not a lover. "'There's something dried up in you, Eustace.' I'm not sure there isn't something dried up in all our cast. We've had to do with forms and ceremonies too long. We're not good at taking the lyrical point of view. Unfortunately, said Milton, I cannot, to fit in with a theory of yours, commit a baseness." Old Dennis began pacing up and down. He was keeping his lips closed very tight. A man who gives advice, he said at last is always something of a fool. For all that, you have mistaken mine. I am not so presumptuous to, to, to attempt to enter the inner chamber of your spirit. I have merely told you that, in my opinion, it would be more honest to yourself, and fairer to this lady, to compound with your conscience and keep both your love and your public life, than to pretend that you were capable of sacrificing what I know is a stronger element in you for the sake of the weaker. You remember the saying, Democritus, I think. Each man's nature or character is his fate or God. I recommend it to you. For a full minute Milton stood without replying. Then said, I'm sorry to have troubled you, Uncle Dennis. A middle policy is no use to me. Goodbye. And without shaking hands, he went out. End of Part Two Chapter Twenty-One